Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, February 19th. Thanks so much for tuning in. Got a good show lined up today. I'll be chatting about the economic impact and what it has been on the country with trains failing to move across Canada thanks to those protests and blockades. I'll be getting a brief update on the patient care tower as we look ahead to Radiothon tomorrow where we'll be raising money for RIH Foundation and, of course, uh, just healthcare in the city as a whole. And it is hump day, so it's time for another edition of That's Whack Wednesday. Wednesday. But to begin today's show, it is the week that we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of three Memorial Cup wins in four years. And to help talk about what this week means and look back at those glorious years, I am joined by the CEO of Hockey Canada, the former head coach of the Canucks, Rangers, and Oilers, and most importantly, former head coach of your Kamloops Blazers, where he won that Memorial Cup title in 1992. And in a pair of seasons with the Blazers, he compiled a 101-37-6 record for a 7-14 win percentage, which ranks as the all-time highest winning market in CHL history. I am joined now by Mr. Tom Rennie. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm well, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. So, Pleasure. Yeah, so you're coming here to Kamloops to celebrate some, some pretty special teams, and you know there's going to be a lot of legendary Blazers here with you. So uh, just what are you most looking forward to about this week of celebrations, and uh, you know what are you getting set for here on Saturday? Well, you know, it all, always comes down to people at the end of the day, and, and certainly I'm looking forward to um, being um, together again with uh, the, all the teams, uh, the coaching staffs, the staffs in general, uh, obviously the community that chooses to participate, and I hope it's tons. Um, just all of that. It, it's just a, it's a great opportunity to reflect back on some pretty special times for for Kamloops and and its uh, and its incredible fans and fan base, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to most of that. What do you remember most about that that 1992 team that you know you did help lead to a Memorial Cup title? I mean, you had some great young 16 uh, year old players with uh, you know Tyson Nash and Darcy Tucker and Ryan Huska, but you also had a lot of good veteran players um, and then soon to be NHLers like Niedermeyer and Corey Hirsch and Daryl Sador. I mean, this was a pretty spectacular team when just looking at the names. So, how, how soon into your tenure uh, as a head coach of the Blazers were you aware of just how good this team was? Um, I think I was pretty well aware of it the day I started uh, the year before, um, and that's a testimony to Hitch and and uh, the Bob Brown and and uh, and Donnie Hay, quite honestly, who had uh, worked awfully hard with what was there when I showed up, and and uh, I think I was a beneficiary of some awfully good work, um, you know, before that. So I, I certainly think of that. Uh, you know, the players that you've mentioned, uh, amongst others, um, you know, I certainly remember all of that. I remember the Memorial Call Memorial Arena um, and how hard it was to play in that rink for the opponent and making sure that by tradition we continued to have to make it hard on our opponents uh, but there's one game in particular against Prince Albert that I remember in Kamloops and Memorial Arena where we were down 5 nothing, and uh, I wasn't doing a particularly good job of coaching that night and, and uh, going into the third period and we won 6-5 in overtime and, and uh, it seems like at that point in time I think we'd been ranked number one or number two in the in the country all year long anyway but at that point in time number one and uh, the players just took it upon themselves to say okay this is time to make a statement and they did and i certainly remember that 
Yeah, and, and I mean, this was clearly a, a first step, really, in your coaching career, going from, from junior, eventually making your way into the NHL. But can you just talk about how, uh, you know, important these couple years were in Kamloops to really uh, getting your career started on the right foot? I mean, you know, you're still the CEO of Hockey Canada. You've had an awesome career in the game. Just how much did, uh, you know, being here in Kamloops kind of set the table for that? Uh, it had everything to do with my future. Um, the only reason I was able to uh, fulfill one of, if not my ultimate dream as a coach, and that was to coach the Olympic Games for my country, was because of Kamloops. Uh, the only reason I was able to pursue an NHL career um, and have some relative success was because of Kamloops. Uh, and the only reason I've been able to kind of pursue things uh, to the on the executive side of the game was because of Kamloops. And that would be uh, hinges most importantly on the, the people that were there and the organization that Kamloops is and was at that time. Um, their attention to detail, uh, their tradition, and their burning desire to maintain a strong and healthy tradition of winning both on and off the ice. Um, you know, th- those are those are some of the things that resonate with me to this very day. Uh, so I, I certainly remember all of that and, and appreciate it all. And anything that's happened, certainly Kamloops was the catalyst for me feeling confident uh, enough to, to pretty much tackle anything I wanted. Uh, here with Tom Rennie. Tom, I did also want to ask, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit here um, throughout our, our chat so far, but just looking at the, the Kamloops community and just how much they've you know, rallied behind this, this Blazers team just uh, from a historical standpoint, but obviously looking back on those championship teams and, and just how, you know, how significant the community was able to uh, you know, show support for those teams and really rally behind them. Can you just talk about this community as a whole and just how you feel when it comes to uh, you know, being a hockey community? It's clearly something that there's a big passion for in this city and and we uh, you know we see it on a daily basis when the Blazers are playing here at Sandman Center the the rink is is uh, always well attended and just how important was this fan base here to you and and just uh, you know making your experience here worthwhile uh huge to me uh, on a personal level for sure but obviously the organization and I, I you know this is not a, this includes any number of years and and, and the coaches that you, you choose to discuss this is a fan base like like none other in the country and Kamloops in my mind is a is a hockey city hockey town like none other in the country and the community gets behind a lot of things in Kamloops not just its hockey team but they get up behind a lot of things because they're very proud of of who and what they represent and that certainly resonates with me I can tell you that every single game felt like we had seven players on the ice uh, no question and a higher and, and, and a heavy responsibility to show up and get the job done which is fine that's all about accountability uh, but the fan base in, in Kamloops really and truly was uh, outstanding and, and uh, happy to report that it still is and, and, and you know for me anyway I, I know that I can speak on behalf of everyone that our guys played hard for the fans in, in Kamloops uh, because of the the appreciation that they had, the fans that is, for the players, um, the interaction of the players in the community, for sure. I think when you look back on off-seasons over the last 25 years uh, and even prior to that, you know, the way players came home, and I mean home, to Kamloops to participate in what might be going on civically there, um, but also from a from a social point of view, uh, a lot of guys come back to Kamloops, and there's a reason for that, and to me that speaks exactly to the fan base and the community itself. 
Uh, now, Tom, uh, of course, uh, this week is a time to celebrate three Memorial Cup titles in a span of just four years. And, of course, you were a part of that first one in 1992. I just wanted to ask about the difficulty of winning a Memorial Cup. I mean, you've coached in the Olympics. You've coached in the NHL. Um, just can you compare how difficult it is to win a Memorial Cup? Because, you know, me as a hockey fan, I almost look at it as probably the most difficult trophy to win, given the fact that you have to get through your league and then win another tournament on top of that. Um, you know, it's almost just a little bit more than, than winning those 16 in the NHL. Just how difficult of a trophy is this to win? And, uh, you know, just uh, how awesome does that speak to the fact that the Blazers were able to win three in four years? Well, it speaks volumes to, again, the organization, obviously, and uh, the ability by Bob Brown uh, and Stu McGregor and the likes to construct a team that was capable of winning it. Um, and that goes back, you know, to Hitch's time, obviously, um, and through Donnie. And, um, you know, so I think it speaks volumes for the ability of the management group to put a team on the ice for starters. And I think beyond that, you look at uh, pretty much a 60-team league uh, when I was coaching in it, and, uh, you know, it's not 32 uh, like we'll see in the NHL in a couple of years, it's uh, you know it's a 60-team league. So to make it from playoff game number one uh, to the Memorial Cup final is an incredible achievement, and I think probably beyond compare um, outside of maybe um, a World Cup uh, soccer event, event. But um, you know it's massive, and uh, to do that and be a contender year after year after year, which again started with Hitch in the, in the uh, late 80s. Um, it, you know, it was remarkable, and to be able to, for the for the team to be able to live up to that standard year after year after year is an exceptional achievement. Um, notwithstanding the fact that there was a uh, three more Memorial Cups back to back to back. And it looks like we're in for another very uh, competitive uh, playoff run here as well. So I'm looking forward to that for our, our uh, 2020 version of the Kamloops Blazers. Uh, Tom, while I have you here, I did want to ask a little bit about what's going on at uh, Hockey Canada. One of the things that uh, you know gets brought up a lot when looking ahead to the 2022 Olympics is uh, whether or not NHLers are going to be there. Um, you know, just with, with your role as CEO of Hockey Canada, do you have any input on that? Or do you have any optimism that we could be seeing NHLers in Beijing in 2022? Um, I would tell you I have input. I don't know if anybody's listening, but um, <laughs> I, I, I do. Uh, I was part of the meetings with the IOC, the IIHF, the NHL, and the NHLPA a few weeks ago in New York, and, and sat in on those meetings. I, you know, I feel honored that uh, they would consider my participation, and I don't sit there. I do participate. Um, that being said, it really does boil down to those four groups uh, to determine what exactly it is they want to do. And at the end of the day, too, uh, as much as anything, and that'd be the NHL Players Association and then the National Hockey League. Um, there's a CBA involved with all of this, uh, amongst a number of other issues, for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I can tell you that it was a, it was a uh, as encouraging a first meeting as you could probably hope for, uh, notwithstanding the fact that there's an awful lot uh, to do in the meantime with respect to what uh, all groups have uh, invested here. And uh, so it's, it's real premature to say that uh, this is going to happen. That That is definitely the case. Uh, we, we just really don't know. But uh, we will be ready like we were for Pyeongchang in, in uh, 2018. Uh, we had plan A and we had plan B and we were into plan B pretty quick. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of the same thing now when you look ahead is to have two plans in place, one if there are NHLers and one if there isn't, because, uh, you know, you don't want to be stuck with, with just one plan, right? 
That's for sure, Jeff. I, you know, and that's life, isn't it? I mean, you, you always have to have a contingency plan, and, and certainly we did. On behalf of the game, we'd love to see the NHL there. We believe that's the best way to, to feature the game worldwide and inspire anyone that wants to play to do just that. Um, that being said, um, you know, we're, we're deep enough as a hockey country to be able to put a couple of teams probably in an Olympic Games other than NHLers, and we're certainly proud of that fact because that speaks to the volunteers, uh, to the coaches, to the passion that we have for the game across the country. Well, Tom, I won't keep you any longer. You've been on long enough, but thank you so much for taking the time to call in and speak to me and uh, you know help celebrate these uh, Memorial Cup titles for the Kamloops Blazers. Uh, looking forward to seeing you on Saturday, and, and uh, again, thanks for uh, calling in here today. My pleasure, Jeff. Look forward to getting into Kamloops. Right on. That was former Blazers coach, Memorial Cup champion, and current Hockey Canada CEO, Tom Rennie. Coming up next, they start to look ahead at Radiothon, which is all set for tomorrow, so stay tuned for more Jeff Andrea's show. That's coming up next. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show, and thanks for tuning in here on Wednesday. Tomorrow, we here at Radio NL will be at Aberdeen Mall looking to raise money in support of the RIH Foundation. Money will be collected to buy some new equipment and get better care here in this community. We'll be speaking to a number of current and former patients and staff about their experiences and why it is such a great initiative. Here's a sneak peek of my chat with Health Services Director Megan Hansen talking about the new patient care tower. The Royal Inland Hospital is in the midst of building a new patient care tower. The $417 million addition at RIH began being built in November of 2018. Here now to provide an update on the project and why it will be so beneficial. I'm joined by the Health Services Director at RIH, Megan Hansen. Megan, thanks so much for taking the time here. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. So what what is going to be in this patient care tower? Obviously, it's, it's a huge addition, a massive project that's going on at the hospital. What exactly is going to be in this new tower? For sure. So, um, first of all, I mean, it's, it's a, a nine-story building, so it's, it's going to be quite incredible. It's going to modernize our, our campus here at, um, at the hospital. So I'll just, there's a lot going into the tower, so I'll just give you a few of the, of the, few of the highlights. Um, first of all, we'll have a new main entrance to the hospital, so as uh, most people that come up here, it's, it can be a little bit different, difficult to find their way around and how to get into the hospital. So um, there'll be a main entrance and a lobby and, and a beautiful new area. Um, for patients and families to come in. Um, we're going to have three floors of single patient rooms and with that they'll each have their own washroom. We're going to have a new labor and delivery unit as well as um, a new neonatal intensive care unit that'll have eight private rooms. There will be new operating rooms, and as well, there will be a rooftop helipad. So uh, those are just a few of the highlights. Uh, it's going to be amazing, and, um, and you know, we're really looking forward to seeing this done, completed. Yeah, yeah it's definitely a, a very exciting project and uh, one that sounds like it will have quite a number of benefits to, uh, to those who are here in our community who are going to be receiving care. Can maybe touch on some of the, the project benefits? I, maybe even just start with the helipad, because that's a pretty exciting addition. And how is that going to be of uh, benefit for patients? 
Uh, so the benefit there is, is our, our current process is, you know, the helicopter will land and the ambulance has to has to pick them up and bring them into the hospital. So uh, with the rooftop helipad, the uh, helicopter will land right um, on the top and they'll have direct access right down to our emergency room with uh, staff only or, and patient elevator. So uh, faster access and better care overall. Yeah, that sounds like you could potentially have, a, a, you know, a difference between life and death at that point if you are able to get uh, just a little bit more immediate care if you are, mm-hmm. you know, injured out somewhere where it's hard to get to. Uh, what, what are some other major benefits that, uh, you know, patients and their families could see as a result of this tower? Is there anything else that you want to highlight specifically? For sure. So, I mean, when we're looking at building this tower, it's from a, a patient and elderly friendly perspective. Uh, so, you know, again, just mentioning the single patient rooms, and this is going to provide a quiet healing environment. Um, so there'll be enhanced privacy of space for families um, families and friends to visit. And, and, of course, each of our patients, they'll have their own washroom and shower, which is significant. Um, we are going to have a new atrium which is going to be a beautiful space that's going to be down on the first floor and that will be a space for families, our patients and families um, to, to gather and, and spend some time together. We'll also have um, you know, wayfinding, so, so being able to find people's way around our site um, can be a bit challenging at the moment, so uh, we'll have uh, new wayfinding out there for our, our patients and families so it'll be easier to find where they need to go. Very, very cool. Um, and so, obviously, you touched on how this is going to have a, a good impact or a positive impact on patients as well as the families that will be coming in to visit them or, or help um, help them with their care. How is it going to benefit staff? What are, what are staff going to notice as some, some real positives as a result of this new patient care tower? So, first of all, I mean, our staff, they do an excellent job of caring for patients and, and their families every day. And, you know, we're thrilled that we're going to have this tower. And so this is going to provide them with a, a modern care setting and new equipment and spaces to be able to provide care. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to being more efficient um, and being able to uh, give the care that the patients need in this quiet setting. So there's going to be the added space, right? And, and as I mentioned, there'll be new equipment. There's going to be updated technology. And this is also this will also help us from our recruitment retention perspective. So looking at both physicians, nursing, allied health, and other profes- professions that um, that support the care of the patient here at our site. Just to follow up on that, when you're talking about uh, retention of staff, I guess is what is available now when talking about equipment and facilities. I mean, how how big of an impact is that on uh, on retaining you know healthcare professionals here in in Kamloops and in the interior. Is that a real drawback for some people? Well, I think I think at the end of the day, when you're you have a, a brand new facility and space and technology that enhances how we provide the care and and being efficient with our time and with how we use um, the resources that we have and and I think as it stands right now, um, you know we have some opportunities there and I think being able to work in a an, in an environment that has that technology that makes life a little bit easier for our staff, um, I think it'll be a significant benefit. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, best of luck with all the work going on. It sounds like a lot of really cool stuff's happening. And I'm sure we all can't wait to, to see it come to completion. Yeah, you betcha. Take care. Thank you, Jeff. Right on. That was the Health Services Director at RH, Megan Hansen. So there's a, a little sneak peek of some of what we will be talking about here tomorrow as part of Radiothon. So please get your giving hat on and get ready for a fun and charitable day tomorrow. 
it should be a good one. Coming up next, just how big of an impact is the lack of rail service due to protests and blockades having on our Canadian economy? Well, I'll be chatting more about that after this. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on February 19th. The First Nations blockades of CN Rail have many an impact, but uh, much further reaching than just the impact on rail itself. The rail system is an important operation carrying about half the total tonnage of freight moved in Canada, and the rail lines themselves are critical to the export of most Canadian commodities. Manufacturing and retail supply chains depend on railways to reach container ports and overseas links, and we just heard this morning of a new rail blockade happening in Edmonton where wooden crates have been placed on the tracks in support of Wet'suwet'en. So far, CN Rail has canceled between 400 and 500 trains as a result of these protests and blockades. Here now to talk a little bit about what those economic concerns are is the chair of the Department of Economics at Thompson Rivers University, Asan Latif. Asan, thank you so much for coming on the show here. Thank you, Jeff. Yes, this is a big concern. Uh, this rail blockade has impact on number of sectors, first of all our grain sector, then forestry product, then our mining sector. So all of this actually depends on uh, movement from one place to another through railroad and from uh, one from uh, Canada to outside for export sector. So that's create a big problem that we are not exporting, we cannot export and there is a big uh, uh, problem in the, all the ports, particularly in the maritime port uh, in Montreal or Halifax and also in St. John. And another big concern is that uh, there's some item like a propane and chlorine chemical item that actually go through rail line. And that uh, creates a problem in Ontario. Uh, there, is, there may be propane sh- uh, shortage in maritime region and chlorine shortage in Ontario. And also the study the maple food, they talked that perishable item like a meat product that cannot transport. And so we, there may be possibility that uh, food price may go up, particularly in the maritime region. And also another issue is that uh, in, if the blockade continues, gas price may increase. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess, you know, I just can you, can you put any sort of um, dollar figures onto this? I don't know. That's pretty pretty difficult probably thing to do. But when we're talking about, you know, some four to 500 trains have been canceled. Uh, there was news yesterday that CN Rail laid off some 450 workers after right. shutting down Eastern Canada networks. I mean, this is clearly having not just an impact on, um, you know, the ability to move goods, but now it is clearly having a significant impact on uh, just, just people's lives and their ability to earn an income. Uh, we actually uh, did not calculate any dollar figure at this moment, but one economist I heard from University of Calgary estimated that per week it is a loss of $60 million to $160 million. And this is a big impact. Uh, there is not, uh, because at the same time, we have uh, all the type of problems coming up, that coronavirus issue and this, uh, this uh, blockade issue. We expect that our uh, uh, GDP growth may go down at least uh, at at this moment 0.1 percent or less or little bit more. 
So it depends on how much, how long it will continue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it definitely going to increase the more that uh, these these last as well. We're just going to see that uh, potential dollar impact or dollar figure, sorry, rise um, as, as yes. the days move on here. Um, what, when you were talking earlier about just, you know, the number of sectors that uh, rely on the rail system to get products yes. from one place to another, um, you know, it's maybe not um, something that many Canadians think about. And you being a professor at TRU, I mean, you're helping to, to teach people about, uh, you know, how our economy works. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective if you think canadians really understand the impact that the rail system has on our economy in canada as a whole and the ability to move goods around is that something that you think maybe a lot of people don't necessarily grasp how significant it is you're right you know that half of the canadian export actually go to the port by a fire rail through the railroad and it is actually send rail to 50 billion dollar every year of export moves so you can understand that we, we understand that we have a truck, but how the truck, the carrying power capacity of the truck versus rail is a well different. And some items you cannot carry by particularly chemical items and perishable items you cannot carry with truck, and it's uh, difficult. So uh, now the alternative is that we can move by truck, but cost will go up significantly. and. Uh, I know that it will, uh, this other area, particularly the biggest big problem in the, uh, in uh, Ontario, they may face problem because of the cost of production will go up, cost of food item will go up. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um it's definitely just the beginning, I think, here. So uh, I guess really as uh, consumers, we got to hope to see these these blockades end soon um, if, if we don't want to see those continued cost increases, you know, when it comes to food, when it comes to fuel, when it comes to so many yeah. things that are being uh, relying on rail to move around here. Um, I guess, do you do you think, and this is purely a, a spectacle or a, a speculation question, I guess, but do you think the government is doing enough at this point in time or, or uh, you know, to, to see things get moving again? I mean, you've talked about just how significant this does have uh, of an impact on our Canadian economy. Do you think the government should be doing more to get trains moving again? Or, um, you know, just just what are your thoughts on, on the government's response so far? Uh, this is actually a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. You can uh, understand that we are, uh, the government is committed to reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we have this uh, rail blockade that has a significant economic impact. And I can see today in the newspaper and the parliament that there is a, a pressure on the business people are pressuring government on this. And there is a poll on, uh, I saw this today poll, that uh, people are not supporting blockade. But, you know, uh, as I told, that this is a indigenous people and uh, government uh, try, uh, to my view, that uh, government uh, tries its best to do that through negotiation. And uh, uh, probably uh, there is a report that uh, this, uh, the, uh, the paper, uh, there is alternative uh, uh, pipeline, alternative route of the pipeline was proposed, but uh, that is not uh, financially feasible. So uh, I think it's better the government should talk, negotiate, because we had in the previous few uh, years ago, number of incidents happened that uh, when the police intervened. So um, I, I, I want to give government more time 
mm-hmm. led them to do negotiate because this is not a this is a this is a complicated issue and sensitive issue. Well, uh, Isan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and talk about this. I think it's an issue that uh, we're going to be paying attention to until, uh, you know, it is resolved. It's something that, uh, you know, like we've talked about here, it's having an economic impact now, and that's just going to ex- uh, continue to, to get worse the longer we wait to see these trains start moving. But uh, also, like you mentioned, it is a sensitive issue, and reconciliation is a, a major thing that has to be taken care of as well. So yes. um, it's going to be a difficult issue to, to overcome, but uh, we're definitely going to be watching it closely. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about it. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Jeff. Awesome. That was the chair of the Department of Economics at Thompson Rivers University, Isan Latif. Uh, yeah, definitely just uh, something that is going to continue to get worse until it gets better. I mean, uh, news out of yesterday here, CN Rail is laying off, laying off about 450 workers in its operations in eastern Canada after cancelling over 400 trains in the past week over these rail blockades uh, protesting the LNG pipeline here in northern BC. Um, the layoffs are affecting operational staff, including employees working at uh, auto ports here in eastern Pat- Passages in, in Moncton and Charney and Montreal. So um, it's definitely uh, it's having more of an impact here on Eastern Canada so far, but uh, I, I don't think it's long before we start really feeling the effects out here as well. I'm sure we have on a smaller scale, and it's just a matter of time before those scales start to get a little bit bigger. Coming up next, it's time for another edition of That's Whack Wednesday. So stay tuned. We got more Jeff Andrea show coming up after the break. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Wednesday, February 19th. Yes, it is Wednesday. It is the middle of the week. Hump day, if you will. It all goes downhill from here, both in the week and this show. It is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. yesterday was budget day i thought it might be a good idea to talk a little bit about what was in that document and what in it is a bit whack let's start with the one for sugar lovers out there the bc government expects to rake in an extra 30 million dollars a year by applying the provincial sales tax to carbonated sugary drinks according to the government pst will be expanded on july 1 to include sweetened carbonated beverages at a rate of seven percent so that means a two dollar can of pop from a vending machine will jump 14 cents. Man, that? Man, that is... The province is saying that the biggest consumers of soda pop are teenagers between the ages of 14 and 18, with consumption of pop declining with age and the consumption of these beverages increasing health care costs for British Columbia. So, it sounds to me like we should be blaming kids for this increase in pop pricing. I try not to drink too much pop myself, but there are days, you know, where I just need it. Sometimes I might need something to mix with my rum or vodka, while other times I may just want a nice cold glass of iced tea on a hot summer day. Now that is going to cost me a little bit more, and that's the result of people aged 14 to 18? Well, I gotta say, I think that is a little bit... What else in yesterday's budget just doesn't sit well with me? Well... There is no mention in the budget of the $400 renter's rebate program that was promised three years ago. The NDP campaigned in 2017 on introducing a yearly grant for renters similar to the one provided to homeowners. And yet, here we are, 
three years later, and that promise has not been fulfilled. You know what I say when it comes to broken promises. Oh, that is whack. As a renter myself, it would have been nice to get a few dollars back on an annual basis. Groups out there say that a person should not be spending more than 30% of their income on housing. Well, a rebate would definitely help with that. And I don't know too many people, at least not people who are living alone, that would be able to say that that figure, that 30% figure, is achievable. So the fact that a major campaign promise was not fulfilled here and is not going to help renters achieve that goal of a, you know, spending just 30% of their income on their rent, I, I don't love it. I have a little bit of a problem with it. And let's just say I think the whole thing is just a little bit. Whack. More WAG news out of the budget, and this one not surprising, but still something to be wary of. ICBC lost an estimated $91 million last year, which of course is less than years past, but the Crown Corporation is still not in the black. Look, this whole ICBC situation isn't going to go away. I get that they're trying to make it better, and they're trying to make it profitable with proposed changes, taking the lawyers out of it and helping to streamline the claiming process, all of that. It sounds great. Well... At least the government makes it sound great. Whether it is or not, I think, is still up very much for debate. I will say this, though. It will be hard to convince me that insurance is something the government should be providing at all. And the fact that it continues to lose money is also a big cause for concern. That said, I do like paying less. I have no plans to get in any sort of serious collisions. So... I will be okay with cheaper rates that supposedly will come with these changes. I'm all for spending less money, but I will remain skeptical until we see ICBC make money or at the very least break even. ICBC losing $91 million, and you can say in its, that it's an improvement all you want, but at the end of the day, the fact that it lost $91 million, I gotta say that is pretty whack. Increases are coming to the Climate Action Tax Credit with an additional $20 million earmarked to make electric vehicles more affordable. Currently, 9% of new vehicles purchased in B.C. are electric, putting the province ahead of its target of 10% by 2025. Now, this program will continue to provide up to $3,000 in credit for a new electric vehicle purchase. Not as nice as the $5,000 rebate that was available in the early part of last year. Safe to say the province learned a little bit from that experience. My problem with this, though, is just that these electric vehicles are so darn expensive. They cost anywhere from $40,000 and up. And, and I would obviously not complain about the rebate. I mean, uh, $3,000 back on your vehicle, that's fantastic. If I could save $3,000 in anything, I am all for that. Uh, my issue with this, though, is that I'm not convinced it's enough to actually make people want to have their car switched out for an electric vehicle. And that is the whole point, isn't it? A $3,000 incentive to go buy a zero emissions vehicle. And, you know, when you're talking about less than 10% of a car, I'm just not convinced that it's going to make enough people want to do the switch. If it doesn't do enough to encourage people to change the vehicle that they drive in, then I'm just not convinced it's worth doing. And with that said, I think the program itself may just be a little bit... I will end off on this, when it comes to the budget anyway. Uh, this isn't a bad thing, but the fact that it is needed, I think, is whack. The province will make an additional $65 million in funding available to help B.C. prepare for, respond to, and recover from wildfires, floods, other climate-related emergencies. Like I said, this is a, a smart move, because as we know, 
at least I hope most of, uh, most of us out there do know, that these types of natural disasters are becoming more and more and more common, and we need to take action in order to address these concerns. The fact that this funding needs to be made available is unfortunate. Whack, if you will. But it is a smart and precautious move. And we here in the interior, and in Camelot specifically, we don't have to look very far back in the history books to know that being prepared for a natural disaster, more specifically a fire, is a smart thing to do. And it could have an incredibly positive impact on a very negative thing. And there is nothing whack about that, but just the overall increase in natural disasters and the fact that this funding is something that does need to be made available, my friends, I think just that is a little bit all right i got a couple of minutes left here so i just wanted to throw out one more thing before i wrap things up here for the day stats canada says the annual pace of inflation jumped 2.4 percent to start this year fueled by higher costs at the gas pump and this is the one that bugs me because you know gas prices going up that's pretty uh pretty common experience these days but pricey tomatoes Yes, the inflation rate is going up as a result of pricey tomatoes. Yeah, costs grew for fresh vegetables by 5%, largely attributable to a 10.8% jump in the price of tomatoes. And that stems from inclement weather in growing regions of the United States and Mexico. So overall, the increase in prices of 2.4% compared to a year ago was driven by increased mortgage interest costs, purchases of passenger vehicles, auto insurance premiums, and a bump in rents. But all of that said, the one that bugs me here, because I eat tomatoes almost every day for lunch. Whether you hate them or not, you like a nice BLT, I don't know, uh, just a tomato sandwich is pretty delicious. You put them in your salad, you have a Greek salad, whatever the case may be. There's a lot of reasons for tomatoes, spaghetti sauce. Man, I don't know what I would do without tomatoes. And the fact that tomatoes are up 10.8% and how much they cost, there's only one word that I can use to describe that. Let's throw it to Hannibal Burris here one last time. Whack. Yeah, that's right. That is whack, my friends. All I want to see is affordable tomatoes, a uh, rebate that is actually going to have enough of an incentive to make me want to buy an electric vehicle. I want to be able to hit that 30% mark on the amount of money I spend on rent on an annual basis. So yeah, I'd like to spend a little bit less on rent, you could say. Um, I would also, you know, of course, like to see sugary drinks not cost as much because when I do want them, I would like them to be cheaper. All of that in, that's what uh, that's what I talked about today. It's That's Whack Wednesday. You know what I think is whack out of the budget. You know what I think is whack about our inflation prices. There you go. This has been That's Whack Wednesday. That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas. All right, well, that about winds things up here today on Wednesday, February 19th. Of course, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Remember, if you have any burning questions or a subject that you'd like me to talk more about, or maybe you just want to say hi, please don't hesitate to shoot me an email, uh, jandreas at stingray.com, or hit me up on Twitter at jeffrey underscore andreas. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y underscore A-N-D-R-E-A-S. I'm always willing to listen, and of course, we'll always be open to responding. So... There we go. That about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time. 
while it lasted. I'll be back here on Friday at 9, as tomorrow it is Radiothon, so I hope to see all of you down at Aberdeen Mall, helping to raise some money for healthcare services in our community. So, we'll talk then.